This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Our Zoomer squad started the week talking about pedestrian safety and Mayor John Tory's unveiling of the first automated speed enforcement sign in the Rathburn and Renforth neighborhood. The signs alert drivers to the fact that 50 speed cameras will soon be installed in various parts of the city as part of the broader Vision Zero plan. This is one of many challenges the mayor is facing, along with his plan to hike property taxes to pay for transit and housing projects. Joining Libby Snymer, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor Peter Mugridge, Zoomer Media VP David Kravitz, and CARP Senior Policy Officer Marissa Lennox, first on the topic of speed cameras. As far as I understand, where you're speeding, it'll detect it, and then you'll, it, you know, simply you'll receive a, a notice in the mail that you well, have a fine okay. to pay. Okay, so now it's signs. The cameras are coming starting in two weeks. In January, they will start sending out warnings if mm-hmm. you're speeding and no tickets for 90 days. So everybody has fair warning. And the other thing about these is that they're mobile. They'll be able to move around the city. So it's not like, you know, oh, there's there's one at this particular intersection. I'm just going to be slow when I do that because you're never going to know where you find it. Well, but even where Mayor Tory was speaking, he said in this school zone where the speed limit Grand is 40, and- 40 kilometers an hour, he, they caught someone driving 200 kilometers an hour. I mean, it's egregious. Yeah. And when they had their tests, most people were speeding. Yeah. Well, for yeah. sure. So, for sure. Wh- why are you saying for sure? Most because people? I think, well, they're speeding and they're speeding. If I'm going uh, 50 and a 40 kilometer zone, it's not too. Well, and, you know. and, but the thing about these is that it'll be curious to see how, how they roll out because, well, you know, often there's an element of discretion on the part of the police officer to determine whether or not, oh, you're just going 10 over. Maybe we won't mm-hmm. issue you a ticket here. And it's simply a warning with this one. I mean, if you're going one kilometer over the speed limit, what happens, right? Does it trigger that ticket? I don't know. And, well, all, and we'll also, they, they do have some signs I've seen. I know I think I come down Mount Pleasant and I think another one at Dufferin where it says the speed limit is this, your speed is this, but has one. And I don't know that it really stops anybody because all the ones I've seen, it's speed 40, your speed is 46, your speed Mm -hmm. is 46. Because half the time the traffic is so intense that you can't speed if you wanted to. Yeah. Okay. It's funny. I see. doesn't mean you're paying attention. There's other dangerous driving other than just speeding. Right. Sure. Okay, so still in Toronto, what about what about this impending property tax? I, everyone that I've spoken to is totally on side. They need the money. I mean, I sort of get that, and it's going to be dedicated to affordable housing and transit. Well, part A, I agree with you. I think everybody's on side. Part B, what it's dedicated to, and if you have any confidence that it will be actually spent on that and spent effectively on that, that's a whole other uh- that's a whole other topic. It, that, it doesn't make sense to me that everyone you've spoken to would be on side with an well, 8% oh, property Well, every counselor I've spoken to. Oh, no. okay. Well, fair, not, enough. Not, fair enough. No, 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 no. Because I hear that and I'm, and I'm thankful I don't live in the city of Toronto. Well, 
but you, you've probably then been saying for a long time, those people in Toronto, they pay low property taxes. Yeah, that's, that's mean, kind of that, a mantra in the GTA. Yeah, they, they pay the, according to some reports, they pay the fifth lowest in Canada. So, um, still to David's point, though, it's important to know where those funds will be spent, and if they do go toward, you know, as you say, whatever. Well, and the other thing is, of course, uh, the mayor ran on saying he will absolutely not do that. So. Well, reality wins every time. Reality wins, or does it mean he really isn't going to go for a third term? I don't know. I'm surprised that they said it was going to go on to transit, though, because that just seems to be a black hole of uh, spending with very poor visible results in the the short term. Uh, I drive past that Eglinton crosstown mess every day, and that's, you know— they will solve peace in the Middle East before that yeah. thing's finished. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you know, Let's as far hope so. as I can tell. Well, it, it's part of reducing congestion too, right? If they can ever get the transit thing right, like maybe the you, you can actually get somewhere when you're driving. Yeah. But but every mayor has promised to fix that problem, that ginormous problem, and yet here we are. Marissa Lennox of CARP, A New Vision of Aging, Peter Mugridge, Zoomer Magazine Senior Editor, and David Kravitz, Zoomer Media Vice President, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Flu season is here. There is word from the Public Health Agency of an increase in outbreaks and hospitalizations, with 724 laboratory detections of influenza in the first week of December, the highest so far this year year. And 64% of regions across the country reported at least some influenza activity between December 1st and December 7th. In the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says there have already been 1.7 million cases of flu illnesses reported this season, along with some 16,000 hospitalizations and 900 flu-related deaths. We have to go all the way back to 2003-2004 to find the last time that an outbreak of the flu ramped up this early in the season. Have you gotten your flu shot? On Monday, Libby was joined by family physician Dr. Jeffrey Habert. We're seeing some early uptick of activity. We'll see what happens for the rest of the season. This season doesn't yet look particularly worse than other seasons. Typically, in any given flu season, we have 3,500 deaths in Canada and 35,000 in the States, 10 times bigger, and 12,000 hospitalizations in Canada. So we see the similar type of numbers every year. This does seem to be an H3N2 season, and that's the virus that's particularly bad for seniors. Um, So that's a bit of an issue and has to be dealt with. And as you said, most importantly, get a flu vaccine. The government is covering the high-dose flu vaccine again. Right. But... The numbers don't match up because they have, the government has purchased something like 250,000, a quarter of a million doses, but we've got 4.6 million seniors in the province. So I can't speak to how many vaccines the government's purchased, but we have had a problem with accessing the vaccine. Um, So we're not able to get vaccine for all the seniors, the high dose vaccine. So because it's so late in the season already, we're now starting to recommend 
just get vaccinated. So to get a regular vaccine, you can get it in the pharmacy. You can get it in your family doctor's office. If you don't have a family doctor, you can get it, like I said, in a pharmacy or a walk-in clinic. But I think most importantly, get vaccinated. If you're lucky enough that your family physician has high-dose vaccine in stock and you're over the age of 65, the high-dose vaccine is about 24% more effective in seniors. So I think it's very important because in seniors, the vaccine doesn't tend to work as well. In, in younger people, the vaccine's about 65% effective. And in seniors, the standard vaccine's about half of that. So the high-dose vaccine boosts that by about 24%, which is very important. Okay, and, and it's important for people to understand it's not like 24%, it's 24% of... Of the lower number, right? So it's not 100%. Number. But you know what, what's important is no vaccine's perfect, flu vaccine's not perfect, but... If you do get vaccinated and happen to get influenza, the influenza may be less severe. And we've seen 60% less hospitalizations. It decreases mortality rate. The flu is a serious illness. I mean, people die from influenza, as I just said, 3,500 people a year in Canada. So it's very serious. And it's much more serious in the elderly that have so many medical comorbidities. Yeah, I I don't think people get it because people say, oh, the flu, no big deal. I, we still, you know, the last time we talked about it here, I was still getting calls from people saying, I don't need the flu shot. I've never had the flu right. and I'm never going to have it. I mean, right. so first of all, obviously get the flu shot for others because, you, you you know, there's a whole issue of I herd agree. immunity. It's important for young people to get the flu shot to protect to protect those around them that are susceptible to the wrath of the influenza. I don't know if that message has gotten through enough. I agree. I mean, it's, it's so significant. I mean, for seniors, seniors that get hospitalized with influenza, if you get hospitalized, your chance of death is about nine to 10%. Those are very large numbers. But I think even more importantly is what you just said not everyone dies, a small percentage die, thankfully, but the rest of them lose time from their life. They lose independence, they lose the ability to cope on their own because they're already fragile when they start. So I think it's so important to try and protect yourself. And And the influenza isn't going away. We see it every season, we vaccinate every season. The influenza vaccine does not make you sick, contrary to what people say, it does not make you sick. What is the likelihood of, uh, are are you going to get more high-dose vaccine or not? You know, we've been told that we are going to be getting more high-dose vaccine. We were given a few doses last week that went away quickly, but we've been told yes. The problem is now the push before Christmas to get everyone vaccinated because offices will be closed. So I'm now starting to tell my vulnerable seniors, you know what, it's time. We got to get you vaccinated. So let's not wait. If they're very well seniors and they want to wait, I'm saying, okay, we can wait a little longer. But it's starting to get late in the season now, and I'm starting to vaccinate with the regular one if I can't because I haven't had high dose around. That was family physician Dr. Jeffrey Habert talking about the flu vaccine. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned this past week from the country's largest health diagnostic testing company, Life Labs, that they'd been the target of a major data breach, leaving the data of 15 million Canadians vulnerable to cyber criminals. Here in Ontario, 10 million people have potentially been affected. 
The type of data includes health card numbers, lab results, addresses, passwords, and more. LifeLab CEO Charles Brown is downplaying any concerns, but we wanted to find out what's at stake and go through what protection the company will make available going forward. Libby was joined by technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy and Anne Kavukian, executive director of Global Privacy and Security by Design Center and former Ontario Privacy Commissioner. This is just totally unacceptable. A company like LifeLabs with 15 million people's resources in terms of the most sensitive personal information that exists, health data, you would think that the strongest security imaginable would be applied to this data. And clearly, that hadn't taken place. And you can't say, well, it's no big deal. We're monitoring it. and There's been no use of the data. That means nothing. Often in cases like this, identity theft will arise a year later. You know, the, the people who collected the data will just stay still for a while, and then boom, away you go. This can inflict enormous harm. Carmi Levy, uh, again, there are people say that there is more danger of what Anne pointed out at first, uh, identity theft down the road than the use of the medical information. Would you agree with that? I would. The numbers don't lie. We've seen this happen time and again in some of the most major breaches to date. Yahoo, Equifax, Capital One, Desjardins. Um, it's in the months that follow, often years afterward, that that information, once it's out in the wild, is bought and sold time and again on the dark web. Uh, it lands in the hands of those who would then use it. They'll put it together with other data from other breaches and then use it to prosecute identity theft attacks. And so, you know, the fun is just beginning if you've been victimized here, and it's going to get much worse over the next number of years. And so to hear uh, the CEO of Life Labs, Charles Brown, uh, be as, and as you put it, flippant, uh, and I think you're absolutely right, but to listen to not just what he said, but the tone of how he said it, it's really not that big of a deal. We've been monitoring. It's fine. Um, that enrages me. And the fact that we are not marching through the streets with pitchforks and flames uh, at the front door of this company uh, is surprising. At some point, something's got to snap among Canadians, and I'm kind of hoping that Life Labs is that catalyst of event. And how would you characterize the response from that CEO? A lot of people are calling for his resignation. Well, and I totally agree with what was just said. I mean, it is such a, it's, it's like such a flippant attitude towards the most serious breach. I think this is one of the largest breaches, if not the largest, in Canada. And dealing with our most sensitive personal information and identity theft, let me tell you, when I was a privacy commissioner, a number of victims of identity theft came to me in an effort to seek my assistance to help them clear their names. This can cause havoc for years trying to explain to the credit card companies, no, no, I didn't rack up those charges. That wasn't me. It's a nightmare. And the thing is, all the personal information that has been divulged here can be used to open up a bank account, uh, obtain a loan, get a credit card, buy a car, you name it. There's no end to what inappropriate use of this data may be put to. I always tell people, beware of the unintended consequences when your information lands in the hands of third parties unknown. We live in an era where technology is racing ahead of the law's ability to keep up. And so the more the government can do to put in a framework, uh, put in place a framework that deals specifically specifically with these kind of threats, accountabilities of companies that, that are holding on to and managing and, and uh, moving our personal data around collecting it, um, and then consequences, what happens uh, and what they're accountable for when they fail to meet that bar, 
I think we need better laws on the books so that companies like Life Labs know that if they uh, drop the ball in future, uh, that there's going to be, uh, you know, significant, a significant price to pay, heck to pay. Um, and that's going to come right from the top. Uh, without that legal or legislative framework in place, um, we're just going to keep skittering from one breach to another with never really getting ahead of it. I think the government has a major role to play in ensuring that we're protected well into the future. Finally, Anne, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? You have to be proactive in terms of companies. Don't wait for the data breaches and then offer remedy after the fact. We've seen this again and again in all of these data breaches, and it's appalling. You're dealing with big companies, you know, Equifax, Desjardins, Capital One, Life Labs. Why are these companies so under-resourced in terms of security until there's a massive data breach and they'll say, oh, okay, we'll do something now? Way too little, too late. It's time to be proactive, get a model of prevention, bake it into the code. You can prevent the harms from arising. And Kavukian, Executive Director of Global Privacy and Security by Design Center and former Ontario Privacy Commissioner, along with technology analyst and journalist Carmi Levy. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. The governing progressive conservatives at Queen's Park continued to plan a $1 billion cut to the province's social services. One of the programs that will be impacted by this move is the Ontario Disability Support Program, a program the Auditor General recently flagged for widespread fraud. The Tories want to narrow the definition of disability and make it more difficult to qualify, especially for people with episodic disabilities such as multiple sclerosis, arthritis, and some mental illnesses and cancer. City Councillor Brad Bradford is opposed to the cuts and joined Libby's Nimer this past Wednesday prior to a vote at City Council on the matter. I totally accept those findings from the AG, and, and I think that Ontario Benefit System does need an overhaul. Um, there's certainly flaws there. Fraud does happen, and the operation systems are out of date. You know, they, they actually still use paper forms, and it's a super bureaucratic process. That said, though, what, uh, what is being contemplated by the government is not going to be helpful and is actually going to, you know, uh, further stigmatize and put vulnerable residents, vulnerable Torontonians at risk. Um, what they're proposing right now is people for, who qualify for ODSP, um, if they have a disability, um, the definition will be changed to have a requirement of severe and prolonged. And what that means is people who are experiencing things like mental uh, illness or being treated for cancer, uh, multiple cirrhosis, a lot of these, uh, these challenges would no longer qualify. And so uh, it would move people into the Ontario Works program at a time when, you know, really their need is greatest. They're dealing with additional financial barriers, uh, costs associated with medical bills, um, and, and making it even harder for them to, to overcome these things. So I think there's a lot of room for reform and improvement. But again, it's another example of the government coming forward with policies and not actually thinking through uh, how we're going to implement them. You're saying that it's very bureaucratic, and I wouldn't doubt that. So Mm -hmm. do people who have an episodic disability, I mean, do they have enough time to apply for and actually receive it? I mean, you know, for instance, it depends on the type of cancer you suffer for, but sometimes it's, you know, a matter of months that you can't work, not years. That's right, and that's what these changes uh, these changes would uh, would contemplate removing that qualification. So, um, you know, we temporary conditions like arthritis or multiple cirrhosis, cancer, mental illness, um, you know, 
these people are able to work, but it's a, it's a temporary condition and, and they need help um, to bridge the gap. Um, the changes with the definition would, would mean that people only qualify if they have a disability that's severe and prolonged. Uh, and really what that means is they can't work now and it's unlikely that they'll ever be working again. So um, that change will you know, put 120,000 people at risk here in the city of Toronto, and it, it's not like the issues aren't going to exist. Uh, effectively, the city of Toronto will be left holding the bag. It's it's another download onto the municipality. The need is still there, and you know, I think at the end of the day, all levels of government need to work together in a coordinated fashion um, to address these challenges for people. I just want to go over some of the numbers here. So if you're on ODSP, you get uh, $1,169 a month. And if you have to rely on Ontario Works, that's uh, $733 a month. Right. And, and, and so that's, you know, nearly half, half of the, uh, the support. And I don't think that the, you know, the cut should really be done on the backs of our most vulnerable residents. Again, I think there's a lot of need for reform in these programs. But the way that you make reform and address the, the systemic problems is, is to talk to people. Talk to people who have been involved in the program, who are receiving the services. Talk to the people who are administering it. You know, they will have a good sense and a good idea of where things aren't working. So let's engage in a robust pro- process and, and, uh, make an agreement to work together on how we're going to implement some of these changes and fix the problems as they exist today. Okay, so uh, what are you trying to get done in council and what are the chances that it'll be effective? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's been a number of files. Uh, Public health is a great example uh, where we have called on the province to have a sober second thought about some of these things. And uh, in in the same vein and fashion, you know, we're calling on them to reverse the billion dollar cuts to social support funding that they've already announced uh, to maintain the existing definitions of disability for uh, the ODSB program, um, you know, to to continue to, to increase the social assistance rates here for our vulnerable residents and actually engage with the people living with disabilities to take their lived experience into account, um, as well as the people who are administering the programs when designing social assistance. Um, I think that's the way we're going to get to a better outcome. And frankly, you know, we're all interested in better outcomes. How we get there is really important. And that's why the consultation um, needs to be a foundational piece of any sort of program reform um, on any of these files. Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford. It was a unanimous vote by Toronto City Councillors to approve the motion by Councillor Bradford, which urges the governing PCs to reverse the cut and scrap a proposal to change the definition of disability for ODSP. Todd Smith, Ontario's Minister of Social Services, has said he's continuing to review social assistance and that a 50% increase in the number of ODSP recipients in the past decade shows something needs to be done. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Dave phoned from Montreal to say that pedestrian safety is not just a big issue in Toronto. We're having the same, very same discussion here in Montreal about crosswalks and uh, about drivers not respecting them. It is a big, big problem here in the city. Uh, what they've done is they're starting to repaint the crosswalks a bright yellow because a lot of them, um, the paint was washed out from so many years of not 
having them painted. So they they're taking to repainting them a very bright yellow, and it's still not really having an effect. Uh, I am visually impaired. I use a white cane, and sometimes I don't even think the drivers notice it half the time. So, you know, it, it, it is a very serious matter, and I think we need to be talking about it absolutely. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Joan in Burlington with some good advice during flu season. I've been having the flu shot since 92. And last year, I tried to get the high dose. And every time I phoned my doctor's office, they had run out of the supplies. So I said, okay, I'm just going to go to the pharmacy. This year, I went to the pharmacy and had it again. And I've never had the flu. I I very, very rarely get a cold. And I'm one of the fortunate ones. I've never had a reaction to it. That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio. AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.